Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So for the majority of the summer, we've been exploring some of the more familiar stories of the Old Testament in a sermon series that we've entitled Adult Vacation Bible School. We've studied such classics as Noah and the Flood, we've looked at the Tower of Babel, we've looked at Abraham and the near sacrifice of Isaac, we've talked about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, we've looked at the entire book of Jonah, and I've got to tell you, at the very core of my being, I am an Old Testament nerd, so I have been having an absolutely fabulous time going back over these stories. So any excuse for us to hang out in the first two-thirds of our sacred texts, I think, is, is, is well worth it in my book. But if you've been listening closely to those talks, or even if you've not been listening so closely to those talks, maybe this series hasn't been as fun for you as it has been for me. Um, in fact, our rereading of some of these stories, it may have proven to be a bit difficult because at nearly every turn in every one of those stories that I mentioned, I've been challenging our preconceived ideas, what some people would, would call our inherited traditions. Whatever you've gotten at Vacation Bible School or Sunday School or whatever you've grown up with, I think that I've kind of pushed back on some of those readings because in my own journey, I found that when we do the hard work of setting these stories in their ancient Near Eastern context, when we do that, we begin to see some different literary themes emerge, we begin to hear some different theological arguments arising from the text, and we might even arrive at some different historical conclusions, especially when we're looking at a text like Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, or if we're thinking about um, Tower of Babel and the flood stories, those sorts of things. And I know that for many of us, anything that's different within this space at this time for church, anything different or anything that pushes against uh, the grain of what you have already received, it can be massively unsettling. And as you leave here attempting to, uh, to, to figure out what in the world to do with what you've just heard, that can be lonely and tiresome and difficult work. To take an easy example, if I lay out a pretty sound case as to why the book of Jonah is best read as a non-historical work of imaginative fiction, if I'm up here doing that, when you have only ever thought of Jonah as a historical character in the Bible, then it leaves you with some potentially jarring questions. Questions like, first and most obviously, what do I believe? 
who's right. When you're bringing your ideas to the table and I'm challenging some of those, it begins at that very basic level of, of what do I do now in light of this new evidence? What have I been basing my interpretation on? The things that I've learned at Sunday school, the things that I've uh, been, been afforded my entire life? Is it personal study? Is it any sorts of those things? Is it the leading of the spirit in prayer and contemplation? What would it mean if, if I decide here or I feel led to admit that I've been wrong in how I've been approaching the Bible. This leads inevitably into this line of questioning. And if that's the case, if I've been wrong on this story, Jonah perhaps, then what else have I been misreading? Why didn't anybody tell me any of this prior to? If Jonah didn't get swallowed by a fish, then what about the other stories? What about Jesus? Did that stuff not happen? Did Jesus not rise from the dead? These sorts of questions can begin to compile very quickly, not to mention when we do five weeks of these teachings, one after the other. So for those of you who have been with us for the majority of this series, or even for some of you that are just with us uh, this evening, this, this really fun slash maybe sort of difficult series, Adult Vacation Bible School, I thought it would be healthy and a good move for us to take a week off from continuing to dismantle and deconstruct the Old Testament, even though I've got to tell you I had a really good one queued up on David and Goliath. Woo! That would have been good, it would have been fun. But not today. I thought that instead we could just take a week to reorient ourselves a bit. And here's where I would again appeal to any visitors or people that haven't spent time with us over the last couple of months. I think this is going to be a meaningful exercise because whoever you are and wherever you come from, you have questions that you're bringing to the table. They might not be the questions that we've been asking that are like theologically nerdy, weighty Bible questions, but you bring questions to the table and you wonder how God intersects or intervenes in those sorts of questions. So hopefully tonight, um, this will be a week for all of us collectively to breathe, to find our bearings. It'll be a week to remind ourselves that God is bigger than any question that we bring to the table, any uncertainty that keeps us up at night. And again, those might be theological uncertainties or those might be the uncertainties that have arisen from your particular moment in life, whether it's sending kids to college or dealing with health issues in the family, the uncertainties that, that begin to arise from those inevitable circumstances in life. I hope that this will be a week to remind ourselves that in the midst of whatever we are rethinking or not rethinking, that we are known, that we are loved, and that there is hope. And for this, I thought it would be helpful for us to return right where we left off in our previous sermon series on the Gospel of John in John chapter 10. Now, here's the problem. We've taken a handful of weeks off and this story that I'm going to read tonight or this set of texts that I'm going to read tonight that's very well known, it's closely connected to the events that immediately precede this story. And we would miss too much if we just jump right in and start reading Jesus' words because they're tied to what has been going on in, in the previous sections. So we have to unpack this and we have to set a little bit of context, which I think will actually work out pretty well uh, because sometimes I don't remember what I preached two weeks ago, so I'm pretty certain that you guys don't remember what I preached 
two weeks ago either, let alone a few months ago. So let's, let's unpack this and begin to set the context for this teaching in John chapter 9. In John, uh, in John chapter 9, Jesus has just healed a man that is said to be born blind, and he heals him on the Sabbath. This is really important. Jesus and his disciples, they were leaving Jerusalem at the time of the Festival of Tabernacles. And in these a couple chapters of Jesus being in and around Jerusalem, he's been uh, sort of one-upping the system here. For example, during the Festival of Tabernacles, there's certain rituals that take place. And some of the well-known sayings of Jesus, they are set within that context. When Jesus says that he is the living water, that he offers this to his people, that it streams from his very being, he's sort of commenting on a practice during the Festival of Tabernacles where the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam, they would put water in these golden uh, vases and then bring them back to the temple and dump the water onto the sacrificial altar, and Jesus stands up and says, I'm the living water. Implication, not this. Or when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, perhaps over his shoulder was this massive lampstand that is part of the Feast of Tabernacles that was um, lighted throughout this this time, and Jesus could potentially be standing within a stone's throw of this massive lighting structure saying, I'm the light of the world, implication, not that. He keeps showing up and saying, I'm the person that you have been waiting for. And as they're leaving the temple, after all these things have been happening, he and his disciples are, are heading somewhere else. And his disciples, upon seeing the man born blind, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born Blind. There's a couple of things happening here in ancient Jewish thought. The first is this idea of uh, retributive theology. If you do good, you get good, and if you do bad, you get bad. So if you are in a situation that is bad, someone must have done bad somewhere along the line. Was it the man himself who sinned? Really fun topic here. Did he sin in utero? because he's always been blind, and he was born blind. So there's a real discussion going on with Jesus' disciples saying, did he sin while he was inside of the womb? That's fascinating. I don't know where you guys are at, but that's good stuff to, to think of. Or did the parents sin and cause, in a sense, this person to be born blind? Then we have Jesus' line that says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind. Most English translations will say he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. And I don't wanna keep going on side tangents here, but this must be said. When we just read those words, it sounds as if the man was born blind in order that in this moment, Jesus could show up and heal him and present this image of God's power to the world, almost with the implication that he was blind because God wanted him to be blind so that in this moment, God could show how big and powerful he was. That's troublesome. A better reading of that text would be uh, he was born blind with the result that God's works might be revealed in him. In other words, God is not predetermining this outcome, but God is intervening in this moment to heal the person that has been born 
blind. And so it says that Jesus, he spits on the ground, he takes some mud, he wipes it in the guy's eyes and then tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then the man went and washed and he came back able to see. And we as good Christians who read the Bible often, we just say, yeah. But take a moment, if you would, take just five seconds and think about what I just said to you. A man, blind, for his entire life, there's some mud that Jesus whips up, puts it on his eyes. There's a pool where he goes and he washes. This person has been excommunicated from his society for his entire being. And upon washing, the man is able to see for the first time in his life because Jesus put some mud. Are you catching the, the coolness of, of what's happened? Don't, don't, ah, oh, yes, I know this story. Rush ahead to the point because I need to be home. Don't go there quite yet. Just be able to experience what's going on here and what Jesus is doing and at least celebrate the oddity and the beauty and the power of what Jesus is up to. And I would even encourage you to do that without beginning to ask the questions, well, what about who's a but, boop? Like when you start going in that direction, just hear this story first before we start going down that line of thought. This sets up what's been happening throughout the book of John, which is namely uh, this, this power struggle and this tension between the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and who Jesus is is that's been happening throughout this book. Jesus's identity is at the, at the very center of what John is attempting to explicate to his readers. Here's this homeless Jewish rabbi who keeps going around the countryside doing really weird stuff, like making mud and putting it in a blind guy's eyes, and then he's magically able to see. Jesus is upsetting the balance, the power structures that be. He's pushing back against the Pharisees and their leadership, and he's doing things in a completely different way. He's threatening folks so that they, they don't quite know what to do with him, and every time he does something like like this, they say, who is this guy? What do we do in light of what's happening? In this story, the, the knowledge of the miracle, when the Pharisees hear about this, they begin to, to pose this big grand inquisition to the man born blind, and they say, how did this happen? The guy comes back and says very matter-of-factly, well, he put some mud on my eyes, and then I washed, and now I see. Parents, do you ever have like a situation when you walk into the room and your kids have like absolutely destroyed everything and you say, what happened? I don't know. <laughs> Just kind of was this. Scott and I were talking about a, a shared mutual friend of ours who posted this video of him and his, his wife on vacation and I think they were down the Outer Banks or something and they go out of the room and they come back into the room and the kids were completely covered in permanent marker, had totally destroyed the room of the beach house and you can just imagine the conversation like, what happened? I, I don't know, it just, it just is what it is. He, I don't know, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. The Pharisees didn't like this response, mainly because it raised questions about who Jesus was again. Like, who, who is this guy? Is he from God? Is he a prophet? Is he somebody that we've been waiting to show up? Is, is he the Messiah? What do, we, what do we do with this? John claims that uh, some thought he was a sinner because he broke Sabbath law, which shows up throughout the Gospels when Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. The Pharisees don't take too kindly to this because it's upsetting the system while others thought that the miracle that he uh, 
and acted, it proved who he was. Like he was on God's team and able to do these things because God had empowered him. The antagonists in the story, they weren't settled by the man's lackluster testimony. They, they enlist the parents and they have a similar line of questioning. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? There's two lines of thought going on here. One, they're not just questioning Jesus's identity anymore. They're saying, is this really the guy? Is this really the guy who's been sitting here at the gate blind, that's been begging for his entire life, that now is claiming to see? And you have to see where they're coming from, right? I mean, that's a pretty outstanding miracle where I can't even put into context what that might be for us, but something that's completely preposterous that has happened. And you might push back and say, is this really the case? Are you really that guy? And how did this happen? And he's at, they're asking this of the parents. Um, but the parents don't want anything to do with the Pharisees. This is the last bit of, of background here because they're too scared. This is really, really, really important here, okay? So hold on to this. They say, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind and we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. The parents are attempting to duck the line of questioning. It's really odd the parents' role in this story their son born blind who's out begging and, and hoping and just wishing, and they're really nowhere to be seen with him. We don't know about their relationship. I don't want to hypothesize about that. But the author of John says his parents say this. They, they shirk the responsibility and push it back to him because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed, it says, that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. As we talked about a few weeks ago, this was like their, their community was on the line here because if they answer incorrectly, according to John, they would be removed from community, put on the outskirts. And in the ancient world, this was, this was a massive deal. It still is sort of a big deal when you're a part of a community that says to you, we don't want you anymore that says to you, you're not really on our list of priorities right now, that says to you, uh, we're not part uh, of your people anymore. In the ancient world, this, this meant life and death. In our world, this, this hurts a lot, but we can still maybe see where, where their fear is, is rooted in their level of comfortability and their routine. They don't want anything to be upset in this big uh, decision. They just want to go to the synagogue. They just want to go and have, you know, Shabbat dinner with their friends that they always do. They just want to go and have all these things that are the same. They don't want anything to be upset, and they don't want the religious leaders to, to look at them sort of side-eyed. They just want to exist, and they don't even, in this sense, want to stick up for their boy. But this is an interesting detail, and one New Testament scholar made a big deal about this. He wrote an entire monograph about it. Uh, it's, a, it's a detail that we would miss nine times out of 10 because we're so removed from this context. But for one, this, this New Testament scholar, J.L. Martin, he says this line about the parents' fear that the Pharisees would push them out of the synagogue, it was uh, demonstrative of a two-level reading in the book of John. This is what Martin meant the author of John is operating at two different levels when he's writing this story. And before we get into this, we've got to remember that this gospel was written probably 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
right? Plot the points. Death and resurrection of Jesus, ascension, beginning of the early church, a handful of decades, we're up to 90 CE or so, and then the Gospel of John is, is put into print, more or less. There's a lot of time that's elapsed between when Jesus was on earth and when John finishes the Gospel, okay? And there's a lot of things that have happened in between that have influenced the community, and what Martin is saying is those things that influence are showing themselves in the text. In fact, they would say that uh, just many scholars believe that John and the other gospel authors, they shape their retelling in light of this gap between when Jesus was here walking on earth and when their gospels were written and they're shaping their stories to meet specific and different needs of their communities. The gospels in this sense, they were not bald recitations of history. How boring would that be? And also, why would we need four of them? If it was just fact-telling, these, these authors are shaping their stories in ways to get certain points across, and John is doing the same exact thing. So what Martin is arguing is that in John 9, the author is tipping his hand at some of the stuff that's happening that doesn't really fit in this context where Jesus was here and almost uh, on the cross and in the empty tomb. He's saying the stuff that's written in the gospel is more reflective of this time period. For example, the bit about the parents being scared of being put out of the synagogue. This probably wasn't something that was happening here in this time. It took much later for the Pharisees to begin going around and actually, literally excommunicating people from their synagogues because of their allegiance to Jesus. That sort of communication, it happened much later. So it's like the author is telling a story about Jesus healing the blind man, which is one level, and then he's also attempting to address the needs of the story and his audience at this level, hence the two-level drama. So historically, this retelling, it's a bit of a mess because you've got elements from this happening and elements over here from these people who need to hear a different uh, story or approach in order to be um, informed and encouraged. And John's story is shaped to meet the needs of this community 60 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection because these folks were facing the type of persecution and trial and exclusion that's outlined in the text. These are the people that really did have to decide, are you gonna follow Jesus or are you gonna be a member of the synagogue? Are you gonna go after this homeless, radical Jewish rabbi or are you gonna hunker down with the Jewish culture that you've always known? At this time, the Pharisees would have been deciding who's in and who's out. If you follow Jesus, you're out. If you reject him, you're in. Now this is cool because in John chapter nine, the man that's born blind, he eventually gets booted out of the community. He is not having anything to do with the Pharisees. And this makes sense because he's not part of that community. So he doesn't really care about putting on airs. His parents do because that's their, that's their family, that's their normalcy, that's their small group, their D group, their C group, their whatever we wanna call that, their relational component. But here, this guy has been on the outs his entire life, so he says, I'm with Jesus. Craig Keener says this, the Pharisees have excluded the healed man from their synagogue community as if they have the authority to decide who does and does not belong to the covenant people, and this 
is the background to which we will now turn and find uh, some, hopefully, some motivation in John chapter 10. This is about Jesus' identity. Who are you? Who Who gives you this power? Who allows you to do these miracles? Are you possessed by a demon or are you from God? And it's also about the Pharisees exerting power that they really don't have, especially for a reading community that is somewhat distanced from the events of the early church that are now having to make these really hard and fast decisions about being in or being out. And this is what we read in John chapter 10, and I apologize I didn't uh, put the words on the screen, it actually just slipped my mind. So, So hear them as I'm reading them to you, and also understand John's a weird, weird gospel. Try to grab some of those words and bring them down but I think we might miss some because of the oddity of what he's saying and how Jesus is is very uh, verbose and talking in metaphors that we may or may not understand. This is John chapter 10. He says, very truly I tell you. In the Greek, this is amen, amen. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. Catch this. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them, which makes sense, right? You're having this back and forth. Who are you? Who gives you this authority? Very truly, I tell you, some junk about shepherds and sheep and a gatekeeper. Like, it's just not the most straightforward answer that he could, he could give to his people. Also, side note, John doesn't really have any energy or time or concern for parables, this is, this is an oddity in the book here. And even the word that's used, it's not a, um, a parable so much as it is a figure of speech, a weird story. Um, parables are more in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here we get this really kind of strange shepherd sheep business. Verse seven, so again, Jesus says to them, because they have no idea what he's talking about, very truly I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. So he's, he lays out this story in the first five verses, like uh, silence, nobody knows. It's me, I'm the gate, I'm the sheep gate. <laughs> From the story I just told. I'm the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We know that verse, right? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And we immediately go where with the thief? Satan? Okay, sure. But in context, also just bad leaders, Okay, Um, we'll we'll get into that a little bit more. And he goes on in verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. 
I, Jesus says, am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So if you, if you hear what I'm saying, like as is often the case, John's language is, is up here, especially when you realize that this is 2,000 years ago in a, in a nomadic sort of community. I don't know what sort of experiences you guys have with sheep or shepherding. I don't know if that's part of your day, day to day. Again, though, I think that we, we struggle to, to connect some of these dots and sometimes we rely on what we've heard and, and how it's been presented to us without really digging in to figure out what this has to do with anything. I mean, it sounds really spiritual, but if somebody just caught you and rise up, as, as is often the case, the amount of theolo random theological conversations I've had at Rise Up is just, it's astronomical. I'm being sarcastic for anybody that wants to know. But if someone wanted to push you and say, what's Jesus talking about in John 10 when he says he's the good shepherd? I mean, it might be difficult to put in words what John is attempting to do, but let me reduce it to its simplest point. Jesus is addressing the questions about his identity posed by the Pharisees by appealing to a well-known metaphor. And it's not just the fact that in Israel you might be um, in line to see some shepherds roaming over on the, the countryside with their flock of sheep. It's, that's not the point. They knew these metaphors because of the Old Testament, God is the good shepherd in the Old Testament. And not only that, there's one uh, chapter in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 34 that lays out the bad shepherds and how they don't care for their sheep and then how God has to come in and become the good shepherd and then how God is looking forward to a day when David uh, or another David would show up to become uh, the shepherd yet again. Ezekiel, side note, is well after the time of David. If we're on a timeline, David is in like 1000 BC and Ezekiel is sometime in the sixth century way over here. So when Ezekiel's talking about David, he's not talking about that guy. He's talking about another David who would show up and become this shepherd that everyone is looking forward to. So Jesus is saying, this stuff from the Old Testament, I am that. I'm the good shepherd. Others are thieves and bandits. His sheep, Jesus' sheep, they know him, and he knows them. To others, they're, these sheep, they're unknown. In fact, they won't even listen to anybody else's voice. Jesus protects his sheep, that whole bit about him being at the gate, like he's, he's warding off the, the animals. The hired hand isn't, isn't about that, but Jesus will protect his sheep, he even lays down his life for them. And anybody with any sort of time in the church or knowledge of the story of Jesus, your, your alarm bells should be going off. There's blinkers on the dash. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know that story, right? Good Friday, Jesus in the crucifixion. This is, this is the, the beautiful depiction of that sacrifice for the sake of the flock. 
He protects his sheep. He lays down his life for them. But others, like the bad shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34, they're untrustworthy and following them will lead to your certain death. For John's original hearers, this image that Jesus is painting is a fulfillment. Just like when he says, I am the living water, not the, the water that's being dumped on the altar. I am the light of the world, not the huge menorah over my back shoulder. I am the good shepherd, like you guys have been waiting for. You Pharisees have all these questions about who I am. I'm answering them right now. Why can't you see it? He's like at pains, even though he's telling weird stories about sheep and, and gates and all this. Like he's, he's trying to communicate to them in ways that they might understand. Jesus, in other words, is saying in this speech about shepherds and gates, I'm the guy. This is an identity statement that he's making to his interlocutors. And to the man born blind, I find this beautiful and moving, if you can catch it. To the man born blind, the one who has been put outside of the community, maybe not only by his family, but by the Pharisees themselves, awaiting for some sort of a miracle that would allow him to come back in and be a part of that, when Jesus shows up and says, his parents didn't sin and he didn't sin, this is just an unfortunate situation, but the result of this with my presence right here and right now is that we can fix it. We can right the wrongs of the world and bring this person back into community. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because these folks have, have left this guy on the outs the entire time, and the only person that the blind guy wants to be in community with is Jesus and his band of crazy disciples who are on the outs themselves, Jesus is saying to him, I know you, you know my voice, I'm protecting you, I will lead you, I will guide you, and dude, I will lay down my life for you. You haven't had that level of uh, engagement yet, but I will give that to you. N.T. Wright says the parable of the first five verses, it seems, is designed to say, this is what I'm doing, I'm there being Jesus. This is what gives substance to my claim to be sent by God as Israel's true king. Hold on to that. The fact that people are hearing me and following me, notably the man that was born blind, this is the sign that God has sent me. Pharisees, please see this. This is what is, is making my ministry legitimate that these people on the outs are finding community and life in and through me. Now, I know that this is an ancient culture, but this is really interesting, right? The primary image that, that is used in the Bible for leadership, for kingship at times even, is a shepherd. And we all have these ideas of what that entails, but I can tell you that when we think about leaders, when we think about powerful men and women, when we think about CEOs and folks that have a lot of zeros behind their name, people like that, we don't think shepherd. This sort of self-sacrificial, highly relational ministry is rarely viewed as emblematic of true leadership in our culture, even for pastors. This is hardly emblematic of what leadership looks like. We might say it, but the shepherd knows the sheep, and they, when they hear his or her voice, they, they follow. 
I don't take that too hard, because really the only thing I'm trying to, to paint there is this image of, of intimacy and relationship that is really hard to develop. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm a bitter uh, old pastor guy who's knocking on the, the door of the mega churches. It's really hard to have that level of relationship when you've got 500 to 1,000 people listening to you preach the word. It's difficult for that to happen, but somewhere in our culture, that's what we have praised, that's the bar, that's what every person coming out of seminary wants to achieve. Status, book deals, image, Instagram likes and followers on Facebook. <laughs> like, maybe I'm just, I'm just preaching to myself here and I apologize if I'm putting that onto you. Maybe we can go in, in a different direction here. Most leaders think outside the church they're apparently consumed with gaining power and status and influence, and less so with knowing their employees, even less so with sacrificing themselves in any meaningful way for them. Yet when Jesus shows up to legitimate his ministry, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know these sheep. They know me. And I'll lay down my life for them. I don't think you get that in Business school, I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't go to business school, so if I'm wrong, please, please help me. Now, there's some clear, low-hanging fruit here that I, that I could pluck. Um, you know, if I asked you to consider what leadership looks like for us politically uh, at the moment, but I won't go there because we're all thoughtful people and we can ably judge for ourselves if we see many shepherds in those seats of power. I knew two minutes in that one wasn't going to fly because you guys haven't responded yet, but <laughs> my goal, my hope as pastor is to be with you in the midst of life. This, this, this text has nothing to do with pastoring, mind you, but I think that culturally when we've, we've adopted these terms of, of shepherds, that, that we, we, we make those ties implicitly, and certainly as I've been reading this, I've been thinking through what this looks like for me, and I love this image of how relational it is and the level of, of intimacy between, uh, between people and how they know their voices. In this story, Jesus' testimony, it's, it's not enough to convince the Pharisees. John writes, again, the Jews were divided because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's out of his mind. Why listen to him? And then others were saying, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There's division between the people what to do with Jesus. And this is where I wanted to go, and this is where I wanted to take us, because I did say that I wanted this to be a breath of fresh air. I wanted this to be a moment where we receive some kind of word of, of encouragement and life and motivation even for the week, because as I look around the room and as I think about the people that aren't here, life is hitting some of us hard. We don't need historical criticism at the moment. I just happen to really like it, and it's hard for me not to, not to bring it up. So apologies there. But in the few minutes that we have left here, I want us to hear these words from John chapter nine, but I want us to hear them in a highly personal way. As distant as they might feel, I want us to be able to reach out and to grab them and to hold on to them as something that is meaningful for us. And there's warrant to do this. One of the coolest lines in this passage is when Jesus goes on this little bit where he says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold historical criticism for a moment here, that's us, that's now. 
We are the other sheep that didn't really belong when Jesus was talking because when Jesus showed up, his ministry was geared towards the Jewish people of the time. But Jesus was radically inclusive and he's putting his shoulder on the door to open it up so that all of us can be brought in to this pasture and to be with this shepherd. He says, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And if I put myself in a, in a bit of danger zone as I was mildly intimating that the mega church structure has some difficulties in it, then I might put myself further into that camp here because when I hear those words about um, one shepherd and one flock, I don't know how representative that always is of the Christian church that is so marked by division, whether it's denominational division or certain things that we hold up as a litmus, you're in if you believe this and you're out if you believe that. I'm not sure, but I, what I want to hold on here is despite our experience, there's unity in this ragtag group of sheep that are united underneath of the good shepherd who knows us and cares about us and loves us. And while some of the sheep amongst us might say, get out of here, you don't fit, we can easily and very quickly say, mm, but the shepherd's brought me in. He's at the gate and he decides who's coming in and going out. He knows me and I, I know him. And there's beauty there and I think there's something for us to push towards as a community where we can be the people who don't make decisions from within about kicking out certain folks, but allowing them to exist and allowing them to receive the benefits of following Jesus. Now, this is what I'd want us to do. I've had my little side rants here about church ministry and stuff. I just want you to consider this from the text. With the warrant that we have, that we are this random sheep that's brought into this one fold with one flock, one shepherd, I just want you to hear this. You're known. Wherever you've been, whatever your mind is struggling with, you're known. Nearly every commentator, this is also low-hanging fruit, nearly every commentator has something in their books about shepherding practices in the Middle East, whether it's ancient or current day, and how the shepherds knew their sheep and their sheep knew their voice. Again, Craig Keener says, shepherds normally become very familiar with their sheep, which would usually not be difficult if the average flock size was about 100. Shepherds know their sheep, they can relate to them, and the sheep, when they hear the voice of the shepherd, will do whatever the shepherd is telling them to do. And this is where we can push back on, sheep are dumb. Maybe, maybe we're dumb. Maybe we don't know what sheep are capable of. I don't wanna push that too far, because I really don't know anything about sheep, okay? So just keep that for what it is. But I did find this to be fascinating. Excuse me as I indulge here into some very strange stuff that I don't think you've heard before. Again, reading from Craig Keener's massive commentary. This is the first volume of two. He's wordy. He says, an ancient goat herd like Daphnis, you know. <laughs> Daphnis knew his animals by name. Conjoined with reports of more recent Palestinian custom, it seems likely that shepherds assigned names, quote, according to shape, color, and peculiarities, and the names given to the lamb or the kid are still borne by the grown animal. 
Such names provided a way to call the animal and indicated the shepherd's ownership. Thus, one family she-goat was named Chione, which means snowy white. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? These shepherds, the only point I have there is these shepherds are naming these animals and they can call them and the animals will follow wherever it is that they're, that they're leading them. This is a simple but very powerful point. You are known. You have been named by your shepherd. I said dad was a pig farmer, he was. I was very clean as a child. I didn't want anything to do with the farm. I ate my pizza with a fork and a knife because I did not want to touch any of that because I was very clean individual. <laughs> but I remember my sister and I, I don't know why I went there, Scott, I apologize, clean. Anyway, I remember like my sister and I would go back and we would name a couple of these pigs. The only one I remember was named Cinnamon. Cinnamon didn't make it uh, because that's not the kind of pigs dad raised. But like she was that color, so we named her Cinnamon for a time. Back to the sermon, I, I apologize. That wasn't in my notes, I went rogue and I'm just gonna get, get back to the notes here. You're known and you're named by our shared good shepherd. He has gone before us to find our provision and protection. And not only are we known, this is where we're gonna land the plane, so just strap in, get ready. Not only are we known, our good shepherd also knows, and here I just gave a, just a random, a random sort of thing. You know, like our good shepherd knows if a father of a soon-to-be kindergartner was really worried about, I don't know, like where he would go to school, just randomly. He knows that. He also knows that for some parents, we, we feel like we have no right or really no clue what we're doing most of the time. The James family went on vacation last week to South Carolina, and I would say, I think Kate would agree, there was more bad moments than good moments um, with, with the family trying to figure out how to raise two God-fearing, loving, justice-oriented young gentlemen. But there were moments, like we were at a rest stop a couple hours from home, right on the other side of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and I was walking, and Jude just came up and grabbed my hand. And we just were walking together, and there was something about his little, juicy, beautiful hand in mine that made me think, maybe, maybe I'm doing something right. But I have like these anxieties about that, and I have these, these fears about who they're becoming. Abe is just like me, and I know what the path of his life will be, and I see it, and it's, it's scary, because I've lived it. Our good shepherd knows these feelings. He knows our unsettledness concerning our future, whether that be our degrees or our jobs or our homes or our relationships. He knows our loneliness. He knows our anxiety. He knows our depression. He knows that we don't want to start over, but sometimes we have to. He knows that we don't want to have the hard conversations, but we need to. He knows that we're angry and afraid about things that we might not be able to verbalize. He knows the diagnosis that we fear. He knows that we feel overwhelmed and tired more than we feel spry and energetic. He knows we are known 
and we are named by our good shepherd. And he guards the gate, wards off the attacks. We are known and we are named and we are protected. I'm hopeful that whatever it is that that we're bringing with us into this space, whether it's, ah, Josh said some crazy stuff about the Battle of Jericho and I don't know what to do with it. If it's that or if it's, I'm having an existential crisis and I don't know what to do with that. We have a good shepherd who knows, has named us Cinnamon, Chione, JJ, Scott, Kayla, Pam and Rob. That's my dad. He's never called Rob. I thought he might chuckle, but I, I quit with the comedy. Wherever you guys are at, you're known. You're loved. You're protected by an advocate. May that be something that we can reach out and grab and hold on to as we head into our week ahead of us. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.